0: Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm so delighted to be here. I want to give you a practical example when we talk about human rights in the Middle East. It, it seems to be impossible. And especially when you talk about HIV AIDS due to you know social stigma attached to it. It makes another difficult component to talk about it. So I want to share with you how we were able to start a pilot project And we were able to scale it up to become a national and international model for conservative social settings. So as you know, while the rate of new cases of HIV-AIDS is decreasing in several regions, even in Africa, the trend of new cases is increasing in the Middle East. If you look at this... Graph. Within 10 years, it got 50% increased, which shows that this is a really important issue in the Middle East. And since we have a huge, you know, young population in the region, that they are at risk for unprotected sex and uh, sharing needles, they make them more vulnerable. And while the resources are available, there are a lot of countries, they have a lot of money, a lot of medical facilities but the main challenge is attitude of stakeholders and policymakers to acknowledge these issues and to work to overcome those barriers so i want to talk about iran as you know iran is located in the middle east we have common border with afghanistan which 80% of the world drug trafficking comes from afghanistan has to cross iran so it is one of the most affected countries by drug trafficking and we have common border with Iraq that we had eight years of war that several hundred thousand stick, they lost their lives. So the western part was affected by war, and we had high rate of unemployment, anxiety, depression, that they put them at risk for substance use, sharing needles, and bloodborne diseases. We have a baby boom that seventy percent of the population are less than thirty-five years old, which makes them at risk for HIV/AIDS, and we had a revolution in 1979. Before revolution, we had a lot of facilities in Iran. They provided methadone for drug users. If they were over age of 50, they registered them to provide opium. After revolution, they closed all those treatment facilities and they sent drug users to mandatory rehabilitation centers, which they were technically prisoned, sometimes for two years, which they had no access to medical treatment or psychosocial supports. Before revolution, you know, there was just on, uh, some unofficial studies that among 35 million population, between 100,000 to 150,000, they were drug users. After revolution, for 20 years, there was no study. Then we had reformists, starting from 1997. They started to open the society. And the, the first study was conducted by United Nations Office of Drug to see what's the status of drug users. And they found is more than 2 million. Imagine within 20 years, 20 times the number of drug users they were increased. means if you deny, if you don't provide services, the, the situation gets worse. The Ministry of Health didn't accept this study. They did their own study. The fund even is greater, like more than 3 million. And the last one was during Khatami uh, 2004. It was 3.7. Then during Ahmadinejad, which took the office uh, in 2005. There was no study over the past 13 years. There's no national status, some smaller-scale research, but we don't know the situation. And based on the UNODC report, Iran has the highest, one of the highest rate of drug users in the world per capita. So we started our program in Kermanshah in the border of Iraq. I am from Kermanshah, which was one of the most affected cities in the region, and the first case of HIV was detected in 1987 in a hemophilic case that they need blood transfusion, and initially the bloods were coming from France. There were 300 cases they got infected by HIV AIDS, but that was a justification, excuse for governments, and they said we don't have HIV AIDS, and if we have few cases, they are only limited among those who receive bloods from France. So, for 10 years, there was debates between experts and policymakers to do surveys among high-risk groups. And finally, they accepted to do some pilot studies. And among those high-risk groups, like sex workers or LGBTIQs or drug users, they only could do survey among drug users. And since there was no facilities there, they could find them inside prisons. So they did a pilot in three main prisons, and they found the rate is between 5 to 8%. So, one of the members of parliament from Kermanshah, because one of the prisons, one of the pilots was in Kermanshah, he decided to lobby and he raised $10 million to have a national AIDS hospital in Kermanshah. So, he had power and political power and money, but he forgot to involve society because for 10 years they had a misinformation about HIV/AIDS. They said if we have this national AIDS hospital in Kermanshah, all of the people in the Chinese, they get referred to our city. Nobody will marry with our daughters or sons. So they opposed to this offer, and nobody re-elected this member of parliament for his next election. So it was a two years of silence nationwide. So there was a huge stigma attached people living with HIV AIDS. A lot of them, they lost their family, friends, jobs, and women, they got double discriminated because they got HIV to their husbands that they didn't know and they lost their husband. How they could justify to their family members that they got HIV? And if yes, how did they get? So we started a program in Kermanshaw. We had three targets group, initially people living with HIV AIDS, but also high-risk groups, injecting drug users and sexually transmitted infection cases. So we call it Triangular Clinic. We didn't want to have a Label on those clinics say this is HIV clinic, which means everybody goes to that clinic. Say, oh, he or she has HIV AIDS, and we wanted to involve society. And instead of top-down approach that that member of parliament used, to have a bottom-up strategy, start with people living with HIV AIDS, then the most affected, injecting drug users, then at-risk group like youth, and then to the society to educate them. And we wanted to integrate prevention, care, and social support. So by providing social support we increase adherence to care among injecting drug users. And we call it restaurant approach, is one stop shopping because a lot of drug users when they come for the first time, it maybe it's last time, how we can provide a very comprehensive menu means providing needles, at the same time condoms and methadone. Even in the US today, some centers, they only provide needles but they cannot provide the methadone and vice versa. So we started in 1999, and we did the first study to find what is the main cause of mortality among people living with HIV AIDS. Since it's an immune deficiency, you think it may be opportunistic infection, but almost 60% of people living with HIV AIDS, they committed suicide during the first year after the conversion due to losing social supports. So we realized more than medical treatment, they need counseling, yes, they need social support, they need mental health support. And when we talked to them, they said, can you come and talk to your family members? Every day after business hours, we talked to their parents and we said they are not uh, guilty, they are humans. And then the family members, they realized that they have misinformation, prejudgment, and they felt guilty. And the next day they came to our clinic. So that was the reason we build up the trust among network software users, injecting drug users, and the number of clients increased from one to two cases per week to fifty to sixty cases per day within six months. This is the model which was documented by World Health Organization as a best practice that we call a triangular clinic and integration of prevention, care, and social supports. So the document is online available if you Google Caremanshaw WHO best practice HIV. It's 55 pages with all details. And then, these are the involving a society, having a special programs for orphans, that they, they lost their parents due to HIV AIDS. And for women, we had a special hours during the morning because they didn't want to interact with men. And we had a special programs for youth. We educated 10,000 students. And each of them was a member of a family of five, and they educated 50,000. So over the time, step by step, they educated society. Instead of coming to a TV, like what the member of parliament did to talk about what they wanted to do, it took us three years to educate the society. And then we used peer approach, follow up, to outreach, because 90% of drug users, they don't come to receive services, especially in public sectors. We provided outreach services for them and also engage our targets group to provide uh, social support, self-help groups. And here, you see, we talked to a mayor, and they gave us that space. They said, this is useless. What you want to do? But when those targets groups got involved, they set up some tents to accommodate those who were homeless and provide services for them. And we work with narcotic Anonymous. There's a huge number of people in Iran that they are working on that to link them with our clinics. And also involve students, how students can educate other students, the peer educators. And every weekend we had a kind of social gathering. We went to the mountains, we had music, dance, and after that we collected 30 strangers to show to the society. They wanted to share that even we are a child positive, but we want to be positive for the society and like births how they support each other, they help each other. We want to motivate people with HIV AIDS that they can help each other. We had special groups for women, women support women. When they had new women who got HIV AIDS, they tried to help them. So this is very interesting. If you look at this trend, for 10 years, there was like a plateau that we don't have HIV AIDS and if we have very few cases. And this is still the case today. In several countries in the Middle East, they say we don't have HIV. If there are few cases, they are foreigners. They came to our country, we test them, we find them, we return them back to the country, which is not the case. When you don't have active case finding, you can't find it, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So then we had that uh, pilot project in you know, 1996, so it was an exponential increase. Then what happened for that member of parliament, two years silence, that dropped and then we started in 1999 end of that in 2000 we had new cases so it was showing that when you have really very proactive approach to not only inform but also involve and engage your target group you can have certain new cases and incorporate human rights approach to health to make services not only available but also accessible and acceptable with high quality so after our program was you know endorsed by organization and UN agencies like UNODC, UN AIDS, UNFPA. We were part of the team to develop the national strategic plan for HIV AIDS. And also, we applied for Global Fund in 2002, because our main concern was that if the government changed from reformist to conservative, how we can make sure it will be sustainable. And we got $16 million for the country, but we put the recipient UNDP, not the Ministry of Health. And also several committees, national committees in different subcommittees, they were established. And since Iran is very diverse, we have more than seven ethnic minorities. Each province has its own provincial committee, which was decision maker for all HIV in, in that province. The head of the committee was the governor of the province, and the secretary was the commission of health, which is the chancellor of medical university. Then also we involved the Ministry of Justice, that they wrote this letter to the whole judge that drug users sh- should be treated rather than sending to p- prison. And that was a great opportunity to uh, scale up services. And then uh, we uh, started programs inside prison. Initially, the first cases of pilots, they were identified in prison, but we didn't want to start with prison because it was very sensitive. We showed the outcome outside of prison, and then after two years, we involved in a prison organization. We did the first methadone program in Kermasha and Tehran, and after that, pilots was scaled up in 2010, more than 28,000. Now over 45,000 prisoners in Iran are under methadone treatment. So there are a lot of great pilot projects that they are successful, but it's very hard to make them sustainable. We try to use HIV model, how HIV enter into immune system, and will stay forever. We integrated HIV programs into existing healthcare settings in Iran because we have a very good infrastructure, so we didn't need to have external fundings hire new people and if funding gets cut everything gets on hold so we just wanted funding for advanced treatments yes so we integrated that there are doctors nurses staff there we just trained them and provided those facilities and that was a good opportunity that had a greater exposure to the rest of the society that to get Educated about HIV AIDS and to get tested and if they need services and also reduce stigma. Since HIV doesn't need visa to cross the border, we had a regional approach. So the first one was cultural approach. We established the first training between Iran, Afghanistan and Tajikistan that we all speak Farsi and then religious approach for Muslim countries. We had I remember visitors from Indonesia, from Bangladesh, from Malaysia, I remember they came in 2001. and then they went back, they started you know similar programs, great jobs they did in Malaysia in 2005, and then they host internationalized conference in 2012. So that was a good model that Iran, as a more conservative, when broke the silence, that was a good motivation for other countries that they said, "This is not a Western approach or a Western agenda." That they wanted to overcome or overthrow the governments. So this is the training we had in collaboration with UNODC in Iran, and we had a special panel for women. So a special panel we had that how women can help women. So in the middle, you see left side is from Ministry of Health of Iran, middle from Afghanistan, and right side from Tajikistan, because it's very important how we should have gender centered approach to involve women and children. And then we extended our collaboration with developed countries, because after several years, we had a lot of doctors. They wanted to be specialized on HIV AIDS or get advanced training. So we had collaboration with Harvard and Yale. We brought a group of experts, and we developed and organized several regional workshops in Iran. And as I said, we had a huge baby boom in Iran how we could motivate young generation to care about a human rights-based approach to health. with focus on underserved and disadvantaged population. We have over a million Iranian-Americans. They live in the U.S. We have a lot of second-generation Iranian that traditionally got disconnected from the original country. So when we presented in several universities, at the end there was a list of students they said oh i didn't know we can do something in iran i went to congo or i went to kenya i said why well, you didn't come to iran so every year we had between 15 to 25 students from u.s they came to iran and they repaired them with iranian students and they had summer projects for three months then they went back this is a group they came from harvard hopkins they did a lot of research together and they got very motivated after graduation, they wanted to go back to Iran. I remember in 2008, we had 310 applicants. Each group of alumni of the previous year, they were in selection committee for the next year. So they helped each other like big brothers, big sisters. But that was a good way to transfer knowledge and experience. And from 2002 to 2008, we were in you know, a hosting between 15 to 25 students each year. In 2008, I went to Iran to host a new group of students. But what happened? So in International Day Against Drugs, the same day that in 2001, I received presidential recognition to work during reformists and golden coin from the head of the judiciary in 2001. The same day, seven years later, during Ahmadinejad, we were arrested and they put us in prison. And we got sentenced in three years for me and six years for my brother. And I want to share with you 20,000 hours experience of being in prison. Imagine if you got stuck in a restroom for five minutes. How does it feel? Oh, the door is locked and nobody can hear me. How is your feeling? Now you can imagine of 20,000 hours. But the, this is on top, imagine this is my brother and me. We have shared vision. We worked together for 10-15 years. And now we had to be separated for 8 months in solitary. The right side is the biggest cell. Belongs to my brother because he was older than me. He had a better <laughs> solitary cell. <laughs> so it was a very difficult in you know, situation for 2 months. They didn't know where we are or family under pressure 24-7 lights in 2 meters times 1.5 meters solitary cell under pressure but when you are in a solitary cell the first thing is to help yourself yes the first step intrapersonal approach helps yourself and keep your motivation and mindset I did everyday exercise and I said I am here like in meditation, how do you do meditation? And after eight months in that situation, they sent us to trial. We couldn't talk to our, you know, attorney before, so I saw my attorney during trial, which was like five, 10 minutes trial. And there was a guy sitting next to us, and we said, which court number you are going? He said, court number 15. I said, oh, I'm going to court number 15 too. Are you going before me or after me? The uh, interrogator said you are on the same file. Because based on regulation, if they wanted to say we identified a network that they wanted to overthrow the government, it should be three. Three or more individuals. Since it was two of us, my brother and me, they added a random person. So it will be three of us and I said this is a network. And then when I went to that trial, there was a general Prosecutor, and he was reading my case said why U.S. did something wrong against Iran in 1953 I look at the behind and say are you talking about me he said uh, who are you talking he said I'm talking about you I said but I was born more than 20 years later <laughs> <laughs> So how should I know what happened in 1953 and then the judge said let's ask more relevant questions he said we look after you for several years, even when you were in the U.S., we know all your behaviors. Mr. Kamran. I said, my name is Kamjar. Even you don't know my name, how you are very confident. You, you know, you took at all of my files. And he said, why did you work with Bill University? I said, oh my God, did Bill Clinton had any university that I was working with? And I was thinking, I say, because in... Persian alphabet, you, you, you write Bill, Yell the dot, if it moves, it's like miss, you know, a spell and mispronunciation. I said, Do you mean yell? He said, Yes, it doesn't matter. Is a yell or Bill? I said, Even you don't know the name of university, <laughs> I'm accused of working with that university. And then he said there was a conflict in the Middle East why U.S. didn't listen to our approach. I said I was arrested eight months ago. How should I know what's going on five days ago even I had no access to news? So this was a kind of a mentality of those people that when they wanted to change you know, the uh, political view, they may make your life very difficult. But the point is how much you are sustainable. Because in your ideas and ideology, since when we were in solitary cell, we realized when we recall how many new babies we were able to protect. For example, imagine you want to work on a human rights-based approach, but you don't want to make it very high profile. You try to work with stakeholders, yes, religious leaders, yes. We, sometimes we had to rephrase or approach Uh, For example, uh, one of our patients came with his mother and his mother was freaking out that she said, my son has AIDS, I will die. I said, your son has HIV. And she said, thank God, now I'm happy. By just changing some sensitive words, you can engage them in conversation. Because it's very important in conservative social settings, the main concern of government is attitude of religious leaders which means before you approach to government you have to approach religious leaders and if you want to approach to religious leaders you have to identify more open-minded and more educated religious leaders so we try to find and finally we found one who was graduated from Sorbonne, very open-minded and when we talked to him he helped us a lot for example In Iran, drinking alcohol is prohibited, but if you are in a desert, you can drink alcohol to save your life. Yes, between bad, which is drinking alcohol, and worse, to die, bad is better. Or based on Islam, if you save one life, it equals you save everybody's life. So we try to use this kind of framework, and when they ask us, we heard you want to work with sex workers. We said, no, we want to work with vulnerable women. They said, oh, vulnerable women, no problem. Or when we started our approach, instead of saying we want to work with LGBTIQs, we said we want to protect life of new babies, not to get HIV AIDS. There's no religion in the world say no, we don't want to save life of new babies. Yes. A starting entry point, find a common ground, and then later we said to save new babies, we have to protect mothers, prevention of mother to child transmission. They said, okay, mother and new baby. Then after a year, I said, father, because if father gets HIV, mother get gets HIV, mother get the HIV, baby. Okay, father, mother, baby. Step by step, I call it dancing with your partner. We try to work with, him. and that I see. If there are some things you think is not doable in those conservative social settings, I think either you are in rush or you couldn't find a right strategy. Because even in science, doctors who have the same training, they have controversy even about HIV treatment or oh, some people say let's start with this treatment or the others and maybe that treatment how do you actually a religious leader should understand everything in one hour lecture yes and at the same time that you want to educate them you should be educated at the same time yes it's a kind of two ways approach so that was the lesson we learn and step by step work with them and try to share credits to give them ownership It's very important so when international visitors, they came, we said, for example, imagine, we were working in Kermansha City. So when visitors from CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, came and visited, we said, this is all which was done by Department of Health and uh, University of Kermansha. They got all the credits. So when minister came, Minister of Health, we said, this all was done by head of the CDC. So when WHO came, we said this was done by ministry of health. So then all like this regional came, we said office of WHO. So this is, you give ownership. When they get all the credits, they keep it for themselves. But if they, see you disconnect them say, oh, we should target this initiative. And later on, when politics change, they wanted to remove our names even say. We did nothing but all picture is still there they forgot to remove because that was a group picture they couldn't <laughs> cut my head but this is the you know approach we continue but in the during the trial after eight months we went to the main prisons that there were prisoners drug dealers robbers and we tried to look like them so we couldn't say oh i'm mean, a we are doctors, la, 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 no, we are like gangs, you can accept us, you know, and we got reunited, my brother and me, and then we wanted to continue our work, you know, if you talk about human rights-based approach to health, it doesn't matter whether you do it outside of prison or inside of the prison, and since you do it from your heart, it doesn't matter whether it's appreciated by the government or organization you are working, or the university or not, as long as you see another human being, we should continue your work, yes? Initially, we wanted to work on HIV AIDS, but we realized a lot of prisoners, they don't have general knowledge about HIV AIDS and also public health. A lot of them, when they go to restroom, they don't wash their hands. So we changed the agenda from pure HIV education to public health education. And in prison, a lot of prisoners, they get selfish. They get careless. Why we should care? Yes how we could educate them because a lot of them, they made another prison in their minds. We wanted to tell them that someday you get released and you have to be prepared. You can get some skills. Yes, this is a great opportunity. So I was teaching English classes and also I was learning Spanish. For one year and a half, I was learning Spanish. And also we identified what are those minimum rights of prisoners. For example, one of the rights was higher education, distance learning, that I helped 35 prisoners, we worked together, we registered, we continued education for a semester, even after one semester, we got a struggle, but we try to learn. And also there was a tiny library, we try to extend hours of library, and every week we could talk for 10 minutes over the phone with our family members, we used five minutes to talk to publishing companies, and we got 5,000 new brands Book. So when we had like Green Movement a year later, a lot of students, they came to prison, they said, oh, how did you find this book? I couldn't find this outside. <laughs> I was in charge of haircut. If you need haircut, I am happy <laughs> to help. Yes, we can do fundraising. And another thing is the rate of smoking inside prison is more than twice. So how we could educate them to help? themselves to reduce smoking by setting up some champions. They were smoking cigarette and threw out the filter of cigarettes and we collected. They threw out, we collected. So by this way, we try to uh, by our, you know behavior educate them. And also we made a red line in the middle of yard and we didn't say the right side is for smoking areas. We said the left side is non-smoking area, which we implied that right side is. We didn't want to tag them. But each month will reduce a space of smoking. After a few months they had very limited the space to smoke. And also there's a misclassification between rich and poor prisoners. they don't talk to each other, they don't work with each other. how we could encourage them to work together as a team. We set up several champions you know football, volleyball champion so the rich and poor enjoy of working together. and also, how we could disseminate health information or other information and educate prisoners, we established a weekly newspaper inside prison. It was a local newspaper. We had only one computer that we were work together. And it was very interesting because initially, we wanted to work in clinic, the triangle clinic that we established inside prison. But the Ministry of Intelligence said, you cannot work there. After a few days, we said, can we work in Division of Health? They check with Ministry of Intelligence. They said no. Because in Iran, when you get arrested, you will be under supervision of Ministry of Intelligence, in solitary cell. And after that, they refer you to the main prison. Then they don't care. So after eight months, we're in main prison. But they check with Ministry of Intelligence sometimes. Then finally, we realized it's a division of culture and art. We, said, we asked, can you work there? They said, who cares? You can go work there. But that was a good exposure to have access to other prisons. And when we communicated with prison officials, we didn't say, I'm a prisoner. I said, I am resident of room number 72, not cell. And they said, do you think you're in a five-star hotel? <laughs> you're in a prison. We wanted to change our mindset. And we said we are in a postdoc doc medical anthropology fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> working, you know, first-hand experience with prisoners, yeah, and that was a very important. Through that weekly newspaper, we try to share our knowledge with other prisoners that we didn't have access to. And one of the things we try to do is to encourage prisoners to serve each other, because when you get selfish, why you should serve another prisoner? Yes, so we had each week one page about who is the prisoner of the week. The first one was a person who was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. He belonged to a religious minority, but he was in charge of collecting filters of cigarettes. So when we recognized him, the next day a lot of prisoners came to us. They said, how we can be recognized next week? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. step by step. And also, the how we could encourage prison staff to have a better behavior with prisoners because as I said these are prison organizations like general prison it's not like top security part we couldn't say which prison staff has the worst behavior yes because this could send us to solitary cell and we couldn't say which prison staff has the good behavior which means the rest of them not so we started thinking To rephrase it, we found that we can say who has the biggest smile. So the first one who had the biggest smile, he was there for 27 years. We recognized him. So the next day, a lot of prisoners went and said, congratulations. So we wanted to, by positive reinforcement, encourage them that if I get sick, if I get tuberculosis, you get tuberculosis as a prison staff. And if you get infected, your family members get infected, society get infected. So right to health for prisoners, not only for themselves, it's beneficial for the entire community. And in bottom left, you see, this is the editorial board that we had. They belong to religious minorities. That they contributed. We wrote about the culture, history. And later on, we had access to female prisoners. I will tell you how. And we encouraged them to submit these you know, papers for that weekly newspaper. And we had a lot of prisoners who were artists, we asked them to change the environment of the prison by painting on the wall, like mountains, rivers, sun. If you go to Evan prison, hopefully not, you will see a lot of arts on the wall. And morning exercise, because a lot of them, they don't care about their body. So step by step, the environment changed after 10 months, became more friendly. And changing the cognition, look at the right side, that is say how you date a girl, say, what's your cell number? Yes. <laughs> then right side two prisoners say, what's your cell number? <laughs> so we try to change the attitude that we are there as a humans to live there. Because initially there were some prisoners that they were like wait and watch. Uncertainly kids' mindset. Said you are there forever. And how you can survive, how you can socialize. And that was a very important, and since we were doctors and we used to be in TVs, they knew us, they trusted us, and that was a good opportunity for us as a strength that we could work with them. So then, step by step, the environment changed, but the minister of intelligence, they came and said, you are continue your work, social change. So they banned us not to go to cultural division, and they sent us to the bakery and kitchen. So my brother and I got separated again. My brother went to kitchen, working with tomatoes and potatoes, and me in bakery. So when I went to bakery, initially I said, oh my God, I don't have any skill of baking in my resume. What should I do? <laughs> I was carrying heavy stuff, but after a few days I said, oh, these breads are distributed among prisoners. Yes, right to food is part of right to health, yes? Let's change the agenda. How we can healthy bread? Since that bakery was running by prisoners, I asked them to have a glue gun, the way you go to emergency room, to wash ground, wall, not to smoke cigarette. And the first thing is not to infect, yes? How we could prevent parasitism? because a lot of people, they may have parasitism by having a stool exam. Every day, I had stool exam, from patients and I went to lab of the prison and they got mad at me and said, every day we wake up, these lines of <laughs> students are waiting for us since we had high turnover, you know, every week new prisoners. So I wanted to make sure we don't you know, disseminate. And then since I could count more than ten and I took a statistical courses at Harvard, I was in charge of distributing breads Every day I was carrying cards. And I was distributing breads. And that was a great opportunity for me to distribute breads for female prisoners. So I got access to female prisoners. I shared what we are doing. And they did the same thing. And I remember we had a morning exercise. And how we could express our opposition by counting together. One, two, three, four. And then female prisoners, they did the same. So by this way, we try to express ourselves, but at the same time, encourage prisoners to do an exercise. And one day, one of the prisoner staff came and said, I want to make confession. This bakery is cleaner than my bakery. I became happy. I said, oh, thank God. But after a few days, the Ministry of Intelligence was informed. After four months, and the interrogator came to me, and he said, we heard you are in charge of distributing breads. I said, I didn't know this is a very impressive job. He said, how many breads did you distribute? I said, I distributed yesterday, like (laughs) 5,000. Today, I distributed 5,200, does it matter? He said, yes, it means you have total number of prisoners who eat these breads, which means you have total number of prisoners daily basis, which is top secret. I said, oh my God. So they moved us. Uh, to go to the yard of the prison to be in charge of sweeping and that was during fall season and in in charge of collecting dry leaves and when you would try to collect them they get broken 10 times it's very hard job (laughs) but after a few days the minister of intelligence and prison organization they had an emergency meeting and they told to all the prison staff that allied brothers are dangerous they are brainwashers don't talk to them they wash your brain without you, you know, <laughs> realize. So they moved us to another prison in the middle of Norway, near Qom. So that was 130 kilometers far from Tehran. And then that belonged to lifetime sentence drug dealers to make our life <clears throat> difficult. But when they went there, they were all drug users. Then I said, Oh, as my advisor always told me come here let's focus now i can focus on drug users yes <laughs> don't do a lot of other things so we were working there and since that prison was end of Norway, way the prison staff doctors worked there they knew us and they let us work there so we were able to see patients as doctors and also educate prisoners about HIV's uh, hepatitis tuberculosis and I realised those doctors are very medically oriented. I said why you don't study publicus? Every day I was teaching one hour about epidemiology, how to manage outbreaks and I encouraged them to apply for Master of Publicus. And they didn't know what is Master of Health. At that time, we had a School of health in Tehran. And I said, I know the dean of a School of health. I know if I write a recommendation letter from prison for you, you get in trouble. <laughs> but I can make verbal recommendation because we're supposed to bring that dean to another country. So we made recommendation. They applied. They got admitted. And I helped them to take those courses. And then after a few months, the Minister of Intelligence was informed. And they came and they said you are continuing to do the same thing So they decided and said you shouldn't have any communication with any human beings Okay, they couldn't send us back to solitary itself Because usually it's very hard to justify But they said given to your background on health We send you to work in a farm This is a semi-open prison farm for chicken they were all chickens more. There that I was in charge of <laughs> overseeing those chickens, that they will be food for prisoners. But after a few weeks, they said, get out of here. I get released. There was a huge campaign for us. Thanks to all of them, you know, Physician for Human Rights, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Howard School of Public Health. It's very important if some people getting arrested for the work that they are doing. We have to be the voice of the voiceless. It's very important. The sooner you are, it's better to protect their life. Even it may take longer because they, it makes the government angry, they don't release them, definitely. But you protect their lives in short run. So we got released, but our hearts are there, and we continue to work on health and human rights approach, working in Pan-American region, continue to work in the Middle East and this is a program we had the first workshop on health and human rights for female prisoners in El Salvador for nine countries because as you know female prisoners in El Salvador are in pretrial for two years and after two years you maybe you are not guilty but since they are not officially registered prisoners, they don't have access to minimum health care services it's very Mm -hmm. unbelievable and we established the Institute for Health and Human Rights We developed several graduate and undergraduate degrees, Advanced Certificate in International Health and Human Rights, first LLM on Health and Human Rights in the U.S. And for undergrads, we had a Global Medicine and Human Rights for pre-med students, and help in developing guidelines how to incorporate human rights education for health workers. And also, at the same time, to continue to open the door to use the health as a tool We call it Global Health Diplomacy and Human Rights. By respecting human rights, but through health, which is less sensitive, to identify common ground between countries that they have conflicts. And we we brought scholars from Iran to the U.S., and we are working right now in 10 countries on a human rights-based approach to health. And one of our initiatives was for internally displaced Syrians, how we could educate them through online And interestingly, even most of them, they didn't have computer, but 90% they had cell phone. We developed an app through online education. We recruited bilingual co-instructors. And we educated 525 medical students inside Syria. This is the only online existing program in the world for Syrian inside Syria. Because there are a lot of initiatives for refugees in Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, but nothing inside Syria and another project for Turkey on drug policy reform, and also how to incorporate and integrate substance use treatments to primary medical doctors. And another one, to organize high-level consultation on HIV and human rights in conservative social settings by getting funding from OPEC, Foundation for International Development, that funding from the region, expert from the region using the approach from the region. And how we could address key population, including sex workers, LGBTIQs, prisoners, injected drug users, and identify frameworks, for example, based on Islam. If you are sick, you are in priority. We said these are people who are sick, so through that network and also by involving a lot of religious leaders from the region, that say God is more compassionate than to punish people, because initially I say, oh, this is a punishment by God, yes? How you have a you know, conversation between those religious leaders? And developing several health and human rights trainings to develop 300 human rights lawyers to work on health, and 300 CEOs of NGOs to work on health, environment, and sustainable development in the Middle East. And this is another, the last you know, high-level consultation that we had in Lebanon, that we presented the outcome in International AIDS Conference in Netherlands last July. <coughs> and another project in IREX, we established a Center for Women's Right to Health in Erbil, 25 miles from Mosul, which was attacked by ISIS, to integrate mental health to maternal health. So we involve a lot of interns that they are volunteers, they took our courses on health and human rights semester next semester they came as an intern to earn credits and they were involved to write grants and most of them they got hired by the grants that they were involved is a kind of social entrepreneurship how they can get a skill of grant writing and then that was a great opportunity for them to have a summer internship in prestigious organization so based on my experience nothing is impossible except except what except impossible So (laughs) everything is possible. And I want to conclude, I want to use this quote, that when we wake up in the morning, we have two simple choices. Go back to sleep and dream that most of us, oh, that was a very nice dream of human rights in the Middle East. (laughs) (laughs) It's a dream. Or wake up and chase those dreams. Choice is yourself. And I want to conclude with this poem from Rumi. You know Rumi that to have a common heart is better than common language. So it's very important, especially for students, to be honest with yourself Why you are working. Health, human rights, whatever you are doing, whatever, whatever your passion. If this is what you want to do, don't lose your hope and don't underestimate your power. And when we started this program, we were students, medical students. But the point is to be flexible but consistent. We call it learn from nature. There is no river in nature which goes straight, yes? Goes left and right, change its way but not its goal. And the more it goes, get stronger, yes? So we learn from rivers to have a river strategy to find a way and never give up. So that's my message for you, and I want to thank you very much. Thank you.